Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. Just a little uh, funny for you. Um, my daughter is out of college now, and, and she's staying with us, and, and we're enjoying her. And uh, right now, doesn't have a full-time job, so she's got time. She went and visited my parents uh, all last weekend and was there five days. I know they really enjoyed her, and she enjoyed them. And They live out in the country. Um, now, something you need to know about us is we have one dog and one cat. And I like the dog. I, I wish the cat would go away. Um, but even though I like the dog, the dog is trouble because she sleeps in bed with us, which is not my choice either. Um, and, and so I've always said, and, and everybody in my family loves animals, and so they're always finding this dog or this cat, oh, shouldn't we? And I, I always say, get rid of one of the ones we have and we can have that one. That's, I've, I've been very firm on that. Um, but my dad, you know, like most country people, they have cats all over the place. They keep, keep you know, keep the snakes away and catch rodents and things. And uh, these cats live under their house. Um, so one of the cats had kittens a few weeks ago, and my dad decided to tame one just for Kaylee, my daughter. And so she brought it home yesterday. So I'm not talking to my dad anymore. Um, so I have, yeah, I have a grand cat now. But uh, so... We see how, uh, how, how much I'm the ruler of my home, right? But uh, anyway, we'll see how that goes. If y'all see me with no hair next time you see me, uh, you'll know why. Uh, so we're, we're continuing our, our Tough Questions series. And um, so I don't know if you remember this, but I got these questions from you, from the members of this church. I asked back last summertime if I did a, question, a series on the tough questions in the Christian faith, tough questions about Scripture, etc., what would you like me to deal with? And so I got tons and tons of answers. Uh, didn't expect to get so many, so I've got enough that it'll take me until we break again in June to finish all these. I divided them up into three categories. This fall, I did the ones that I, I classified as objections, thing, things that you've heard unbelievers say, like, uh, how can we really believe, how can we really take the Bible literally, and where did the Bible come from? How did we get the scriptures we have today, and is, is the Bible anti-science, things like that. So we dealt with that this fall. Um, this winter, we're going to deal with the ones that, that deal with specific scriptures like, well, I read this in the Bible and it doesn't make any sense. What does this mean? Or how do you explain this? Um, and then this spring, we'll deal with uh, difficult questions that Christians have to wrestle with. How does the, what does the Bible have to say about this issue or that issue? Um, so we'll do with those, deal with those in the springtime. Those are probably the most, uh, probably attract the most interest. But uh, so tonight, we're going to start through the, through the winter, talk about these difficult scriptures. So I'm going to start with, with by saying in 2013, some of y'all remember, was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And so that summer, my daughter and I took a trip to Dallas, rented a hotel, and we went to the sixth floor museum uh, where you can, by the time you're at the end of the tour, you can stand just a few feet away from the spot where the assassin lined up his shot. You can feel like you're looking down the sights of the rifle. Uh, that's in that very same building where the assassination took place. Uh, we took a bus trip that took us by uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's house, where he, he and his family lived at, in 1963. Uh, we, we got out of the bus and stood on the street at the very spot where he shot Officer J.D. Tippett after the assassination was over. We drove past the theater where he was arrested and the entrance to the police station where Jack Ruby walked in and, and took his life on national television. 
Um, and, and why would we do that? Why would we, why would I spend money on a hotel room? Why would we drive all that way? Well, I'm into history and so is she, but there's more to it than that. There's something fascinating about that, that whole event because there are a lot of people who believe there's more to it than we're told. There are all these hidden clues that something else happened. Now, I'll just stand up before you and, and tell you, I believe Oswald acted alone. I don't believe in any conspiracy theories. I think it just happened the way we were told. But having said that, if there's a documentary on the History Channel tomorrow night that says, brand new theory, I'm probably going to watch it. If I see an article on the internet that says, we've got new evidence, I'm probably going to click on it. Why? Because we find that kind of thing fascinating. The idea that there's this, there are these hidden clues leading to secret information, we have, find that kind of thing hard to resist. And there are a lot of people who think the same thing about Scripture, that maybe we're not being told all the, all the real truth about God, Maybe there are things in Scripture that we haven't really, that, that our teachers haven't brought out or that we've just glossed over. Uh, now, some of you are familiar with the, the author Dan Brown, who by all, I've never read any of his stuff. By all accounts, he's an extremely mediocre writer, but he's sold millions and millions of copies of books like The Da Vinci Code because they're based on the premise that the Bible doesn't tell us the whole truth. There's all this secret information out there. Now, we as Christians, I'm sure everybody in this room, all of us would say, well, that's hogwash. And yet... We hit scriptures once in a while as we're reading through the Bible. We hit scriptures that just don't seem to jive with what we've been told, with everything else we've read in the Bible, with everything else we've learned as believers in Christ. And we wonder, how does this fit? What does this mean? So we're looking at two of them tonight. One of them is Psalm 82.1. And you've got your scriptures in front of you on your notes. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And then Hebrews 7, 1 through 3, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." So there's two scriptures here, and what they have in common is one seems to picture God presiding over an entire council of gods. Like there's a whole bunch of God, gods, and our God is the chairman of the board, so to speak. And the other one seems to say that back in Genesis, Abraham met a man who gave every indication of being divine. So what do these two scriptures mean? What do they mean, and do they contradict what we've been told? So let's start with Psalm 82. The Bible's very clear that there are forces in the world that we can't see, forces that are not equal to God, but that have spiritual power and authority. So, give you some examples. Exodus 7, we all know the story of Moses standing before Pharaoh for the first time, and he throws his staff down, and it turns into a snake. And then he turns the Nile River into blood, and the, the, the curses, the plagues upon Egypt have begun. But the, but the book of Exodus says the sorcerers of Pharaoh performed some of those same miracles by the power of the gods of Egypt. And in fact, when God is telling Moses, I'm going to send these plagues upon Egypt, he's doing it, he says, to punish Egypt for enslaving his people. But also he says, I'm doing it to judge the gods of Egypt. There's another example, Daniel 10. This is part of Daniel we don't usually read. This is, uh, this is a case where an angel appears to Daniel 
And he says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. In other words, Daniel, you prayed, you were seeking an answer from God, and God has sent me to answer your question. Okay? Then he goes on. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief priests, uh, princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. So he doesn't say who the prince of Persia specifically is. That's all the information we have. But whoever it is, this is a being strong enough to detain an angel of the Lord, to basically cause a, an answered prayer to fail to be answered for 21 days. So this is a pretty powerful being. Then Ephesians 6.12, we're all familiar with this one. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And in my opinion, this is a scripture that modern-day American Christians tend to ignore. We know it, but we don't apply it because we spend so much of our time focusing on human rivals and human enemies and human threats when Paul says the real threats are unseen, there are these forces of evil, these authorities, thrones, powers, rulers, forces of darkness. Are, and, and if you take these scriptures and you look at them a certain way, you can say, well, does this mean there are all these competing gods out there? Is that what, is that what Psalm 82 is about? Well, you have to read the whole psalm. Haven't, haven't we always said, you probably grew up hearing this, you didn't hear this from me, read the scripture in context. Don't take a verse out of context. When you read Psalm 82, you find out it's a psalm about justice. God is saying to this council, he's saying, you've done injustice in the world. You have oppressed the poor. You've hurt those who are marginalized. And then in verse six and seven, he says, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So, first of all, that term that's translated gods, lower G gods, is a term Elohim, and it, it doesn't mean a specific God. It means divine beings in general. Second of all, it's obvious that the, peop the, the beings he's talking to aren't men because he says, you will die like men. Well, so they're not men. He's not talking to earthly rulers. But on the other hand, they're not gods because gods can't die. God is telling them, you will die someday. You will come to an end. You've done enough evil on the world. You will be judged. So I believe what this chapter is talking about, it's talking about those rulers, authorities, powers that Ephesians 6.12 talks about. It's talking about beings like this prince of Persia that Daniel talks about. I think you can call them demons, you can call them fallen angels, whatever you want to call them, but they're these forces of darkness that we can't see that are not equal to God, that are not divine, but that have power. But here's the key. And, and, and by the way, this, this, is, this is where it, it comes to something that's of interest to us. This could be where pagan religions come from. You think about it. Maybe somebody didn't just make up Zeus out of nowhere. Maybe someone in Babylon didn't just make up Marduk or, or in Canaan didn't just make up Baal. Maybe there was a, 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 a dark force that revealed itself to the Canaanites and they said, oh, this is our God. But it wasn't the one true God. It wasn't God alone. It was one of these demonic forces. And that could very well be. I mean, obviously, the, the sorcerers of Egypt had power. They were given that power from somewhere. But it was the power of God that was more powerful, as we see in the story of, of Exodus. 
So here's what I'm, I'm here to say about Psalm 82. Yes, that, that, I believe that, that psalm teaches that there are these forces of evil and God is more powerful than them. And, and I know information like this can strike certain Christians as being extremely fascinating. And I've known some of those Christians who just get obsessed with the demonic and with the occult and they want to read about it and they want to study it and they want to classify different categories of demons and they want to learn special prayers and they want to learn how to, how to exercise demons from people and yet we're not given that instruction anywhere in Scripture. Anywhere in Scripture. I can remember when our daughter was little and she used to, we, we lived just a few blocks away from her school. And so she would walk home from school. And one day she said, um, if there's any, ever any bad person who's coming after me when I'm walking home from school, don't worry, because I watched a Jackie Chan movie and I'll just, I'll just put some karate on. And we said, no, you don't do that. You run to us. Well, no, no, I know karate. No, you're seven years old. You come to us. So when Christians get all obsessed with demons and, oh, I need to know about this demon, I need to know, what I want to say is, you're spiritually seven years old. Go to your father. He's, he's the one who can defend you. He's the one who can protect you. What the scriptures say is not get obsessed with this information. What the scriptures say is pour yourself into your relationship with the one true God because he is stronger. Remember, one of the most encouraging things in the Gospels is every time Jesus encountered a demon, what happened to the demon? The demon fled. In fact, one of the real fascinating things about the Gospels is the demons were the first ones to recognize Jesus for who he was. People were still scratching their heads. Oh, is he the Messiah? Someone uh, possessed by a demon would see Jesus and go, I know who you are. You're the, you're the true and the living God, and you've come to punish me. So we don't have to worry about these things. Do they exist? Yes. We belong to the king. As long as we trust in him, as long as we're in his will, we are just fine. So then let's look at Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, talking about this guy Melchizedek, this is a reference to a story in Genesis 14. So Genesis 14 tells the story of Abraham fighting a battle. And this is kind of a, one of those stories you wish you had more information about. So, so Abraham hears that his nephew Lot has been taken captive after a war between two kings, actually two coalitions of kings. You've got, you've got four kingdoms fighting against five kingdoms in the Valley of the Dead Sea called the Valley of Shaddam. And after the battle is over, Lot gets captured and he's taken captive. So Genesis 14 says that Abraham and his 318 trained men, attacked at night, routed the enemy forces, and took home all the captives, including Lot, and all the spoil that was gained in battle. And again, I wish I had more information. Abraham, by that time, was an elderly man, and yet he was strong enough and wise enough and sharp enough to lead an army into battle, but not just any army. Where did he get these? Abraham was a private guy. Where did he get these 300 trained men who were valiant enough to defeat four armies. The Bible doesn't tell us any of that. It just tells us, matter of fact, yeah, they won. But here's the part that Hebrews is referencing. After the battle's over, and Abraham is coming back, and he meets the king of Sodom, who I'm sure wants his people back, Melchizedek shows up. We haven't heard anything about him before this. This guy Melchizedek comes, back, comes out, and uh, Genesis 14 tells us that he is the king of Salem, which is the ancient name for Jerusalem, and he is priest of God Most High. And he comes out and he blesses Abraham 
And Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoils of the battle. And this is the first instance in the Bible of anyone giving a tithe to someone else. Abraham was the first tither, but he tithed to this man, Melchizedek. And then that's the end of the story, and we're not told anything else. And we might just ignore that, except it comes up two more times in Scripture. And one of those times is in Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 4 is in your notes. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 is thought to be a royal psalm. Royal psalms were the psalms that were written for the king himself. They were, they were psalms that were written so you could bless Israel's king and say, God's going to protect you, God's going to bless you, God's going to kill all your enemies, and you're going to be fine. Well, that's what Psalm 110 is about. And so through the centuries, people would read that and think, oh, what that's saying is that the king of Israel is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, what does that mean? Well, no one was really sure. See, just, just so we're square on what this means uh, on, on some of our terms, when we say a priest, I know in modern day America, we think of a religious clergyman with a little collar, a little white collar, black coat. That's not what we're talking about here. The priests in, in Israel were the men who offered the sacrifice. You didn't offer a sacrifice on your own. You took it to the priest. The priest was the person, the only person, who had the access to the throne of God, who could stand between humans and God himself. And in order to be a priest, this is another difference, you couldn't just say, hey, I'd, I'd like to be a priest. I feel called to the priesthood. That's not the way it worked. You had to be a direct descendant of Aaron from the tribe of Levi, the brother of Moses. So, the, the priesthood of Israel was Aaronic, A-A-R-O-N-I-C. You are an Aaronic priest. You are, a tri- you are from the tribe of Aaron. So when he says in Psalm 110 verse 4, you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek, what everybody figured he meant was, well, the king of Israel is never from the tribe of Levi, is never a son of Aaron uh, because he's a son of David, but he's a priest of a different kind. He's just not the same kind of priest that we, go, that we see when we go to the temple. He just has special access to God because God has just declared him, you're in a different category. That's what people figured it meant on through the centuries. But then along comes Hebrews 6.20, centuries later. And it says that Jesus has become a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he's saying Psalm 110 verse 4 was talking about Jesus, not about the king of Israel. It's talking about Jesus. It's prefiguring the Messiah. He would be the great high priest. The whole thing, all of Hebrews 6, 20, and then chapter 7, the whole point of it is to say, Jesus is our great high priest. In other words, now here's the real good news. If you don't hear anything else, listen to this. Hebrews 7 is telling us, you don't need a human priest. You don't need any human being to represent God before you. When you have sin on your heart, you don't have to confess it to me. You don't have to confess it to anybody else. Although, if you sinned against a particular person, the Bible tells us to confess it to them and make things right with them. But the only person who can truly forgive you is God himself, and you don't need anybody else to do that for you. God does it. We have direct access to the Lord. Why? Why? That wasn't true in the Old Testament era. Why? Because Jesus is our great high priest. Because he's the priest that ends the priesthood. He's the one who made the sacrifice for our sins, and now we go to God through him. 
And that's the way it works. Chapter 7 is, is, it makes a, a, a big point of saying that Jesus is greater than any son of Aaron. And, and, and the author of Hebrews makes this kind of convoluted argument where he says, hey, Abraham met Melchizedek and he offered a, sac- he offered a tithe to Melchizedek. And it's sort of like, you know, since Aaron descended from Abraham, it's sort of like Aaron himself was tithing to Melchizedek. So that proves that Melchizedek is better than Aaron. And if you don't know Old Testament history, you read Hebrews 7 and it just goes right over your head. But that's all he's saying. All he's saying is that Jesus is all the priest you will ever need. And that's good news. You are worthy because of the blood of Christ. But that still doesn't explain verse verse 3. Verse 3 that says, that describes Melchizedek as without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. What is that talking about? Because it doesn't say that in Genesis 14. It doesn't say that in Psalm 110. Author of Hebrews is the one who says that. What does he mean? Yeah, there's two options I can, I'm aware of. And one of them I would call the simple, boring option. And the other option is the exciting, mysterious option. Okay, so let's talk about the simple, boring option first. In this option, the author of Hebrews is simply saying, we don't know anything about Melchizedek. He just shows up out of nowhere. We don't know who his father was. We don't know who his mother was. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. Usually in the old texts of Scripture in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, usually when there's an important person, we're given genealogical information, right? Their their credentials are established. So we know this person was the son of so-and-so. He was born then. He lived this many years and then he died. But that's not true of Melchizedek. And yet this unknown, uncredentialed guy shows up and Abraham meets him and realizes, you're more righteous than I am. You're closer to God than I am. I'm going to give you 10%. So the simple, boring option is that all the author of Hebrews is saying is, in the same way, Jesus didn't have the quote-unquote right credentials either. Not only was he not part of the tribe of Levi, not only was he not a, a son of Aaron, he didn't even have parents that were married. He didn't have the education. He didn't have the credentials. And yet, he was greater than any priest. He was greater than any Levite. His salvation is greater than any salvation that's ever been offered. That's the simple, quote-unquote, boring option of what Hebrews 7 is about. Now, here's the exciting one. The more exciting option is that Melchizedek was a theophany. Don't you love that word? What's a theophany? A theophany is anytime God appears in visible form. You know, sometimes God appears in as a gentle whisperer. God appears as a burning bush. But several times in Scripture, he appeared as a human. For instance, Genesis 18, when the three strangers come and visit Abraham and they're talking to him about what God's going to do to Sodom. At first, Genesis 18 describes them as three strangers, but later as God is talking to them, it starts calling one of them the Lord. And so a lot of people think, oh, well, that's God come down, taking on the form of a human and speaking to Abraham. Genesis 32 is another example. A lot of people think that when this guy in the dark just attacks Jacob and they wrestle all night, and at the end of the night, the man touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it. Well, later on, Jacob says, I have seen God face to face and live to tell it. And so people think, well, that was God in human form who wrestled with Jacob. Uh, Joshua 5, Joshua, the night before the battle, 
in Jericho comes upon a man holding a sword in his hand and says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And, and the man says, neither one. I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. And so some people think that's the Lord. Who else is the commander of the Lord's armies but God himself? Daniel 3, the fourth man in the furnace, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar sits up and says, I thought we only threw three men in there, but I see four walking around, and one of them looks like a son of the gods. So a lot of people think that, again, is a theophany. God came down and was physically present with uh, those three boys in the furnace. So the theory goes, that's what Melchizedek was, and that's why Abraham was so impressed. He met God in human form, and that's why he gave him 10%. And I understand why people want to gravitate toward that option. My problem with that is, in all the other examples I just mentioned, those were times when, if those represent God in human flesh, it was something that was just for a moment, just for a day or a few hours, and then he was back, then he was gone. But if Melchizedek was a theophany, that means that God came down and lived long enough to have a human name, to become king of a city, to, to live a long time. I mean, this, this means that before Jesus, God had another human life. I've got a problem with that. So count me in for the boring option that the author of Hebrews is just using interesting language, not trying to get us, not to get us all stirred up, but to say, don't judge Jesus. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge Jesus by his lack of credentials. He's all the priest you need. Just like Melchizedek, even though he didn't have the right credentials, was more righteous than Abraham, and Abraham's gift to him proved it. Now, whichever theory you believe, if you want to believe Melchizedek was a theophany, you and I can still worship together in the same church. We're still talking about the same God Whatever you believe, this much is true. There is only one God. That God came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again the third day. And he is the only priest you will ever need, and he is the only king you will ever worship. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord God, we're grateful for that good news, that you stand Lord Jesus, you stand before the throne of heaven and intercede for us, and your blood is enough. Your death for us is all the sacrifice that will ever need to be made. Lord, we praise you that you are the, the coming king, and we look forward to serving under you and worshiping you for all of eternity. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that we have the knowledge that even the parts we don't fully understand, they have answers and we'll get those answers when we need them. In the meantime, the important things, the things that we need to live for you, Lord, they're crystal clear. Help us to focus on those. Lord, I pray all these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.